This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's ask the Lord to guide us in our thinking this morning. Father, we're grateful for the fact that we can come before you and study your word. We're thankful that we have your word, that this is such a privilege in history that we as believers today have a copy of your word. We have access to good translations from the original, and we have so much available to us today through technology and through uh, printed matter to guide and direct us to think accurately about your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew that we we might uh, understand what our Lord is teaching. We might see how it applied at that day and how it relates to us today as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In the last lesson... I was focusing on Matthew chapter 7. Matthew, cha- I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, which talks about mercy. I, there's still more to be said in relation to understanding what Jesus is teaching here in the Beatitudes in relation to mercy. Here he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We need to relate this in some way to the concept of compassion as it is expressed in the Old Testament as well as here. But first of all, we always need to be reminded of our context. The Sermon on the Mount, as I've said in the previous classes, is one of the most difficult messages in the Scripture to interpret. It's difficult because there's a number of background issues in that Jesus is talking to Jews who were under the Mosaic Law. And when we as church-age believers come to passages like that, often there have been those who say, well, that really doesn't apply to us today because that just applies to uh, Israel under the law. And that is a mistake because this, while this is focusing on a proper understanding of the interpretation of the Mosaic Law, it does have application to us today. Jesus' message, like the message of John the Baptist to Israel at this particular time in his ministry, was to repent, for the kingdom of heaven was near. In John the Baptist's message, he was teaching that the people that they needed to change their thinking away from the either the uh, 
secular thinking, the pagan thinking of that time, or away from the legalistic self-righteousness of the Pharisees, what was taught at that time uh, through the religious systems of, of Judaism at that time, back to a biblical view of God based upon God's grace and the fact that salvation was a free offer. It was uh, that message that the Pharisees reacted to with John the Baptist. He was very complimentary with them, you recall, as he said that they were a brood of vipers who were coming down just to see what was going on. And he said that they needed to produce fruit in keeping with their repentance. Now, I touched on this when we went through that passage in Matthew chapter 3, and I want to expand it just a little bit because it helps us understand what's going on in Matthew 5 through 7. There's two issues involved. The first issue is the act of repentance, which simply means to turn or to change your mind. It doesn't have emotional connotation. It doesn't mean to have remorse or to feel sorry for your sins. It comes out of an Old Testament background in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 through 3, where Moses said that there would be a time in the future when Israel was scattered among all the nations, and they needed to turn back to God before God would restore them to the land and establish the kingdom. And so Moses states in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, that when you turn back to the Lord, I will restore you from the lands to which I have scattered you. So this verse becomes a benchmark for understanding the concept of repent. It means to turn back to the Lord, to make this shift. Now, we all know that there are times in our lives when we have committed to certain things, uh, whether it's a diet or whether it's an exercise program, whether it's some other type of New Year's resolution, we have made a decision that we want to turn from doing things the way we've been doing them to improve our life in some other areas. Maybe 30 minutes goes by, perhaps an hour, maybe a day or two, and we violate that. And then we sort of repent and we decide, I'm going to change, I'm going to straighten out. And it may take several days or weeks before we reestablish a new habit pattern. We start getting into the diet or the exercise plan or whatever. We have days when we fail, but we restore ourselves and we keep pushing forward. Repentance as an act of turning isn't a one-shot decision. When the Pharisees came down, John the Baptist emphasized, first of all, they needed to turn. They needed to realize the error of their thinking, and they needed to turn back in obedience to God. But it wasn't just a matter of a mental shift. That mental shift needed to have follow-through in terms of their day-to-day obedience. There needed to be a shift in their thinking, what some might call a heart response. The thinking of the soul is often related to, to in, in the terms of the heart. But then there needed to be an overt obedience, a pattern that extended itself beyond that. Now, there are those who have misunderstood John's statement to, re, uh, to repent and produce works consistent with repentance. And what they hear is that if you've truly repented, you will produce works consistent with that. That isn't what he said. 
He said there's two things you have to do. First of all, you have to turn. And secondly, you need to follow through with that decision in terms of being obedient to God's word, being obedient to the Mosaic law. And what he's speaking of in that passage is that they needed to have a character transformation. Now, in the flow of the way Matthew is setting up his gospel, Jesus is the one who then comes along and identifies what that what those works in keeping with repentance are in terms of a character transformation. That character transformation is summarized in these Beatitudes. Then that forms the foundation for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, much in the same way that the Ten Commandments lay down the basic principles for the rest of the Mosaic Law. Those ten initial commandments state the general principles that are the foundation for the other 603 commandments in the Torah. Jesus is not laying down principles here of how to uh, how to have eternal life, how to be justified. He is talking to his disciples about how a saved person should live in preparation for the future kingdom. This has been identified uh, by some theologians with the term the interim view of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a, the sermon is not being given as a code of conduct for the kingdom, but it's being given as the code of conduct for those who will eventually inhabit the kingdom so that they can maximize their future experience in the kingdom in terms of rewards and responsibilities, uh, at the, that are given out at the judgment seat of Christ. So it applies in two directions. He's talking about general principles that are grounded in understanding the Mosaic Law in the background, the history of the Old Testament. But all of these character traits are emphasized again through through the epistles written by Peter and Paul uh, in the rest of the New Testament. So it is not a dispensationally nuanced sermon. In other words, you can't come along and say he's just talking to Jews. He is laying down general principles of of character for those who will inhabit the kingdom. Those who will inhabit the kingdom include both Jewish Old Testament saints as well as church-age believers. They will have different destinies in the kingdom, different responsibilities in the kingdom, but the universal character traits that are established here are to be evidenced in both of them and that has an impact on their future uh, role and responsibility in the kingdom. Now, as we've gone through this, I've identified some of these things in the previous uh, Beatitudes. And in, as we come to verse 7, I, I wanted to uh, point out the background for this in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Just skipping through the first couple of slides. Hosea 12, verse 6. Uh, states, so you, by the help of your God, return. There's that word shuv again, that same word coming out of Deuteronomy 30. It's a uh, challenge to Israel that they need to turn back to God. What is that going to look like? Is that just a mental shift, a mental change of mind, or is it exemplified in the way they relate to God and relate to uh, everyone else around them. Remember the Mosaic Law was summarized by Jesus, the two commandments, 
The, the greatest of these is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second to this, love your neighbor as yourself. So initially there's a turn to God in terms of learning to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then second in terms of applying what the, the, our relationship with God, in, especially in terms of humility and grace orientation, to our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourself. So this is the challenge that Hosea puts before the uh, southern kingdom, saying, you, by the help of your God, return. They were in a state of apostasy, and he's challenging them to turn back to God, just as Moses had challenged, uh, had reminded that generation of the Exodus that in the future they would need to turn to God. And then he says, observe mercy and justice. Last time I talked about the relationship between mercy and righteousness and justice, mercy and grace, and uh, this is part of observe mercy and justice. These are not mutually exclusive, but true justice should be tempered by mercy. Now, I pointed out last time that we often use these terms grace and mercy in talking about the unmerited favor of God. Grace means uh, unmerited favor. But specifically, grace in the New Testament focuses on the solution to the sin problem. God provides a solution to the sin problem. This is done foundationally at the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin so that we can have salvation as a free gift. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on any human factor. It's based on the work of Christ exclusively on the cross. That's grace. Grace is focused on the issue of solving the sin problem. Mercy, we have often heard perhaps, is that mercy is grace in action. But what does that mean? That it, it leaves something out. How is it grace in action? Mercy, as we see it talked about in the scripture, is directed towards those who are suffering the consequences of sin in their life. Maybe they're suffering the consequences of sin from their own sinful decisions. Maybe they're suffering because they're born into a fallen world, and we see this exemplified many times as those who are lame, those who are blind, uh, those who have leprosy. This is um, uh, Jesus shows mercy and heals them. So mercy is directed towards those who uh, suffer the consequences of sin. And in both cases, grace and mercy are unconditional. That is, it's not dependent on the object of grace and mercy for the reception of grace and mercy. When we display grace towards other people, it's because of who God is, his character, not our character, his character, and what Christ did on the cross. Mercy is the same way. It's the expression of undeserved favor and kindness to people who are going through difficult times, whether it's their fault or not. It's not our responsibility to judge them. That's God's responsibility. But we are to deal with them in mercy and justice. As Hosea says, and wait on God continuously. So it's oriented to a dependence upon God. Waiting upon God is another uh, way of talking about uh, faith, the faith rest drill, trusting in uh, the promises of God, trusting in the character of God to provide the solutions. 
A second verse emphasizing mercy in the Old Testament is found in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where Micah writes, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? In other words, with our fellow human beings, we are to treat them on the basis of justice, to love mercy so that justice is mixed with mercy. Mercy is not at the expense of justice, but neither is justice at the expense of mercy. To love mercy, and the word here for mercy is the Hebrew word chesed, which emphasizes loyalty to God's covenant. Again, that takes us back to the summary of the Mosaic Law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Applying the principles of Torah in the Old Testament would result in mercy. It wasn't just an external ritual thing, but it was to have a transformative effect upon the individual's character. And the third thing here is to walk humbly with your God. So there's a connection between humility, which is fo- the focus of the first three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Those three relate to uh, genuine humility. So there's a relationship between our humility toward God and our expression of genuine mercy to others. And then Zechariah 7, 9, we find this command, thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice. Again, notice how justice and mercy are connected. You can't have one without the other. When you have mercy without justice, it's pseudo-compassion. When you have, uh, when you have justice without mercy, it tends to harshness and tyranny. So the two must, uh, operate together, execute true justice, show mercy and compassion. Mercy here, again, is a translation of the Hebrew word chesed, meaning loyalty to a covenant, faithful obedience to a covenant, with reference to fulfilling the mandates in the in the Mosaic covenant. The word compassion comes from the word for uh for the for the womb, it was a in in Hebrew, your various emotions are tied to various aspects of the viscera, so that when you and to the physiology of a human being, so that the Hebrew expresses the concept of anger by literally saying his nose burned. It expresses the idea of of compassion by the idea of their, their bowels move, something like that. The same thing is true in Greek. It's splotnoi. And uh, there it's the same. The word literally means the something, the movement of the bowels, not in the sense that we would think of that, but that, that we're feeling it deeply in our gut. That's the idea there. We are uh, we're, we, we're deeply, genuinely concerned about someone. So this is the Old Testament background. Now this is quite, this is not what is being seen in the thinking of the Pharisees. In the thinking of the Pharisees, they were often trying to find ways to avoid showing genuine mercy to people because that might cost them something. Uh, we're also reminded that as we show mercy, we're reflecting uh, the actions of God. Lamentations 3.22 is a verse that we're very familiar with, that the Lord's loving kindness or his mercies never cease 
for his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So as we walk by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is going to be producing character traits in us related to grace orientation, humility, as well as as mercy. So this is extremely important to understand this concept. So the promise in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now this second word, elio, elio, which means to, is a passive tense, to receive mercy, is a passive voice verb indicating that someone performs the action of being merciful to us. That person, the performer of the action of mercy at the end, is uh, not stated, but it's the implication is that this is God who is showing mercy uh, to us. This will come about in the future, probably at the judgment seat of Christ. Foundation for understanding and exemplifying mercies, I pointed out last time, is found in Hebrews 2.17, which speaks about Jesus Christ as a merciful and faithful high priest. We are to emulate his character in our life. Now, whenever we talk about mercy... And another word that frequently is associated with it, which is compassion, we often get confused today. There's a lot of false concepts related to being compassionate in our world. And so I wanted to go through about six points comparing and contrasting genuine compassion with pseudo-compassion. First of all, genuine compassion in the believer relates to being kind being kind, generous, and tender towards other people. It is a spiritual virtue that is produced in us through God the Holy Spirit. And in mercy, the believer seeks to alleviate any personal suffering in the lives of those around him as a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And even if a person is suffering consequences for their own sin, we are not hardened to that, uh, but we can uh, exhibit personal compassion for them without violating whatever justice God may be bringing in the life of a person. But since we're not omniscient, it's not our place to try to determine what God is judging and what God is not judging. So in mercy, we seek to alleviate the suffering of those around us in order to make their life better. Second point is that genuine compassion uh, may be expressed in terms of evangelism through the spiritual gift of helps or through intercessory prayer or through personal motivation in giving. There are a lot of different ways in which we can express compassion towards people. Often in pseudo-compassion, what happens is because the motivation is somehow based on guilt or emotion, we, we hurt the situation more than we help the situation. So it takes a certain amount of wisdom. If we are going to uh, exhibit mercy towards people, it should be done uh, prayerfully, and we should be seeking uh, the proper way to handle those situations through the Word of God. The third thing we ought to note is compassion in particular situations cannot be legislated. 
The government cannot come in and legislate compassion. Churches cannot come in and legislate compassion. Sometimes you have uh, these kinds of things going on under the concept of, of pseudo-compassion simply because the churches are trying to uh, manipulate people in terms of giving or in terms of uh, various other missionary programs or things of that nature from a false basis, not understanding the righteousness and integrity of God. And in my last point related to genuine compassion, we need to recognize that throughout the Old Testament, the emphasis is put on the responsibility of the individual. It's not something imposed on people by the government through taxation or the uh, distribution of, of uh, wealth or through social welfare programs. When you look at what the Scriptures teaches about the role and responsibility of government, the role and responsibility of government is limited. It's designed to uh, protect citizens from criminality, to protect the nation from foreign enemies, and to provide for general order uh, so that people can live productive lives, if they so choose, based on their own volition. As a result of utilizing their own volition and their own uh, exercising their own responsibility, some will fail and some will succeed. It is not the responsibility of government to guarantee the results of uh, their volition so that they end up with with uh, minimum damage from bad decisions because when you limit the consequences of bad decisions, you will also necessarily have to limit the the blessings from good decisions. And so the government at this stage trying to guarantee end results often produces a a false concept of society and equality trying to guarantee the equality of results. This is motivated by a false concept of of uh, of compassion. Now this next point should be numbered uh, five. I was putting this through when I woke up at four o'clock this morning. Jet lag is a wonderful thing. Forgot to renumber these next two points. Pseudo-compassion manipulates people through emotion or guilt. Don't you just love it? I don't know if you ever have insomnia. Get up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're watching some show on TV, and they run these ads about pet abuse, animal abuse, and they're just horrible. And, uh, of course, I think anybody who's abusive of a pet uh, should have the same penalty as anybody who's abusive of a, of a human being, and that's just the death penalty. But that's just my opinion. I hate looking at these. I immediately change the channel. But they're designed to m- manipulate the emotions and the guilt of the person watching. It also had the same kind of ads and give just a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars to feed the hungry in Africa. It's, it's not based on a ge- concept of genuine compassion, but manipulation through emotion or, or guilt. They use certain images and music, and often it's uh, presented on the basis of logical fallacies. And so this is the wrong basis for uh, being compassionate towards people. Also, we find that pseudo-compassion expresses itself through an end justifies the means rationale as a revolt against authority, uh, often involves illegal political activism, or it uses political power to achieve goals that are not 
delegated by God to human government. So we need to be very careful to distinguish between a genuine compassion for people and showing mercy to people and a pseudo-compassion. Now, there are a couple of times when Jesus talks about mercy and the importance of mercy in the spiritual life in confrontations with the Pharisees. These are the two passages I read at the beginning of class. Matthew chapter 9 gives our first example, so turn with me there. Uh, Briefly, we'll look at the context. Jesus has just called Matthew, the writer of this gospel, to be one of his disciples. Matthew would be one of the twelve. He came from a background that was disdained by the self-righteous religious leaders of Israel. He was a tax collector. A tax collector wasn't, um, uh, in that society, wasn't nearly as well thought of as an IRS agent would be by some people today. At that time, they were viewed as being in collusion with the enemy, the Romans, and they would be given a territory from which to collect taxes, and they were given a certain amount of money that they were to collect and turn into Rome. Anything that they collected above that, they could put in their own pocket. So it was a system that was filled with corruption, and it was based on uh, cooperation with the uh, hated Roman enemy. And so Matthew and the other tax collectors that he knows are not thought of very highly by the population in Judea. So Jesus has now irritated the Pharisees by calling Matthew to be a disciple. Obviously, Matthew has already become a believer. Matthew has already been uh, listening to Jesus. Uh, Follow me is not uh, a command to become a believer, but to take another step in terms of being uh, committed towards consistent uh, study and application of what Jesus taught. So they, uh, after calling Matthew... He informs Matthew, we get this from the parallel passages in the other Gospels, to take him home and have a dinner party. So he has a dinner party, and there are many of Matthew's friends there. There's tax collectors. Often the term sinners includes uh, various other uh, rejects from the religious crowd in in uh, Israel. It would include prostitutes. It would include people who are probably alcoholics and who might be cons- generally considered to be failures by uh, others in the society. And so all of these have gathered for this social event in Matthew's home. And when the Pharisees see this in verse 11, they say to his disciples, obviously they've infiltrated the crowd and they see some of his disciples, they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, if he were really holy and righteous, he wouldn't have anything to do with these people. He wouldn't even look at them. And when Jesus hears them, notice his response in verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You don't take the, in other words, you don't take the gospel to those who are already saved. You take it to those who are in need of salvation. And so he tells, and then he, in, in verse 13, he instructs the Pharisees to go and do some homework. He says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verse 6, Isaiah, uh, Hosea 6, 6, 
where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But remember in the Mosaic law, there's this commandment to have a whole variety of sacrifices and the rituals involved with the tabernacle and the temple. So what in the world is Jesus saying here? He's saying that there is a ritual system under the Mosaic law that was important because it taught many things. But that ritual was not identical to their spiritual life. The spiritual life was not something of simple external action, but it was based upon an internal reality that was focused upon a relationship with God. And therefore, it would be grounded in grace orientation and its application in mercy. So he says, ultimately, God doesn't desire just sacrifice alone, just the externals of ritual. He wants a heart orientation. He wants your uh, mental attitude focused upon uh, him and upon his word. So Jesus quotes from Hosea 6. Now let's look at that particular passage. In Hosea chapter 6, uh, Hosea the prophet is rebuking the nation Israel for their disobedience to God. It's a rebuke not only of the southern kingdom, but also of the northern kingdom. And they are described as Ephraim and Judah. Ephraim was, uh, was one of the 12 tribes of, of uh, Israel. And he is often used to stand for the northern kingdom of Israel. So he says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? In parallel, O Judah, what shall I do to you? God is announcing through these rhetorical questions future judgment on these two nations, for this is after the division of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. And he says, therefore, in verse 5, therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. Now, the prophets here is not a reference to the false prophets because it's parallel to the next line, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. So he's talking about the prophets who are the mouthpiece of God to the nation. So these would be the spiritually correct prophets who are walking in obedience uh, to the Lord. So in that first line, he says, I have hewn them by the prophets. This idea of hewing them is the idea of carving them out as you would take perhaps a piece of wood and begin to work it in order to shape it into a, uh, a fine piece of woodwork or something, or take stone and sculpt it. That's the idea there. In other words, it was through the words of the prophets, the word of God, that God would shape the character of the nation. And so he is saying in the beginning of verse 5, I have hewn or I have worked them uh, diligently by the prophets. I've worked them over. Uh, by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. Here's what he is saying is that he's pointing out that under the Mosaic law, disobedience to God could ultimately be punished by death. Just as when Elijah challenged the false prophets of the, uh, of Baal and the Asherah and, and to a sort of a spiritual duel on Mount Carmel, and when it was over with and the prophets of Baal had failed, uh, uh, Elijah had them all executed because the penalty for being a false prophet in Israel was death. And so this is an example of being slain by the words of my mouth. In other words, the uh, 
application of the death penalty. Now, the next line says, and in, reads in the uh, Masoretic text, which is the basis for most English translations, uh, and your judgments are like light that goes forth. But that doesn't make sense within the context, number one. And number two, the uh, parallel versions from, um, uh, from the ancient Greek Septuagint and other uh, Aramaic versions has a different reading. And the, dif- and the difference is that it doesn't say your judgments, but my judgments. God is speaking about the fact in context of how he has brought judgment upon Israel. And he says, my judgments are like light that go forth. The judgments of God are going to expose sin and disobedience among the nation in order to bring them to correction and to repentance. This is seen in parallel passages such as Zephaniah 3.5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. God's justice shines forth as light. So that fits within the context of what Hosea is saying in Hosea 6.5. God is exposing the errors within Israel. Then we come to verse 6. The passage that's quoted both in uh, Matthew 9 and in Matthew 12 in relation to the Pharisees, Jesus, Jesus quoting from this, uh, quotes from this, for this is the statement of God, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now this doesn't mean God didn't want them to bring the sacrifices to the temple. He's using contrast here in order to emphasize what is truly of value. What's of value is not the external act of sacrifice, but mercy, which is a means that the individual worshiper is oriented to the grace of God and oriented to and is and is humble. So God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God, and here this emphasizes a personal relationship with God knowing God more than burnt offerings. So we see a parallel between desiring mercy and knowledge of God. This emphasizes a personal relationship with God uh, instead of just going through formal ritualistic motion. The same idea is also expressed uh, by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, as Samuel challenged the disobedient King Saul, he says it's to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. The fat of rams is what would be poured out upon the altar in a sacrifice. So he's emphasizing that it's a matter of what's going on in the mind, the mental attitude, the spiritual attitude of devotion to God, as opposed to just going through the formal uh, ritual external actions. And then in verse 7, we have an important verse where God compares the disobedience of Israel with the disobedience of something called Adam. What To what does Adam refer? This is where we have to take the verse apart just a little bit because in the English, it says mankind there, that's a typo, not man-king, but like Adam, they transgressed, and then most of your English Bibles have a definite article there in front of covenant, the covenant. The problem with that is there's no definite article in the Hebrew. 
So it's not the covenant. It would either be a covenant or maybe just simply they have transgressed covenant. I think that it is just transgressed a covenant, indicating that there is a parallel between Adam and mankind and their disobedience to a covenant and Israel and Israel's disobedience to a covenant. If you have the definite article there, it makes it appear as if they are both violating the same covenant. But Gentiles, which are usually uh, usually identified as mankind or the nations, Gentiles were never obligated to keep the requirements of the Mosaic law. So you can't have both parties responsible to the same covenant. You don't have that circumstance in the Old Testament, so it's better to uh, set up two parallels. They both violated covenant. Then the question becomes, should that word Adam be translated as the personal name of the first man, Adam, or is this simply referring to mankind? Well, it should be translated as the personal name of Adam. We learn from the New Testament in passages like Romans uh, 5, 16 and following that in Adam all die. So the entire human race violated the original creation covenant in Adam when Adam sinned. And so this uh, this becomes the foundation. And so what Hosea is emphasizing, that there has to be a, a change, an internal change, and not just external ritual in terms of having a relationship with God. Now let's turn over as we wrap up in Matthew chapter 12. We have a similar type circumstance where Jesus does something that really irritates the self-righteous Pharisees. He's out with his disciples. It's on Shabbat when they are not supposed to work. They're not supposed to go out in the fields, and they're not supposed to harvest. And they're going through the rows of grain and plucking off the heads of grain in order to eat them. And the Pharisees get irritated with this and says, well, what you're doing is a violation of the Mosaic law. And then Jesus, in an extremely sophisticated argument, goes back to the Old Testament uh, episode when David and his followers were hungry, they went into the uh, tabernacle and they ate from the showbread. This was not uh, correct according to the Mosaic law, but it is a recognition that they hungered and they should be fed. And the only food available, which was the showbread, which was supposedly for the priests and for God, and so God allowed that. And in verse 5, Jesus says, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? So he uses a second argument. Nobody's supposed to work on the Sabbath. Wait a minute. The priests all work on the Sabbath. They're, they're working all day long. That's their primary work day uh, is on the Sabbath, uh, killing the sacrifices and performing all the rituals on the Sabbath. So Jesus is pointing out that there are exceptions within the law. And so in verse 6 he says, uh, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. He's the one who is greater than the temple. And he says, If you had known what this means, and then he quotes from Isaiah 6, 6 again. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
So again, he points out the failure on the part of the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that they're focused on an external observance without an internal reality. And too often this is a trap that Christians fall into in their spiritual life, and as a result of which we end up going through certain motions without an internal day-to-day dependence upon the Lord so that we substitute an external ritual, and it doesn't have to be something like sacrifice. we just going to church every Sunday, going to Bible class every Tuesday night and Thursday night can end up becoming a ritual with no internal uh, reality. And so mercy is to flow from this internal reality that is a result of our day-to-day walk with the Lord. And as we walk with the Lord... We are to exhibit his character in our lives, which includes being merciful to those who are going through difficult uh, circumstances. This is part of our spiritual life, and it's part of what we will be rewarded for at the judgment seat of Christ, not because we've done it, but because as we walk by God the Holy Spirit, he prompts us in this direction. He's the one who's producing this fruit in our lives. And so everything is ultimately a result of God's grace in our lives. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be challenged in the area of mercy. As we come back to this same passage next time, talking about being pure in heart, we deal with the same issues. Uh, The issue is that internal relationship uh, with you, that we are not just to go through the externals, not just to go through the actions, but we are to have a personal day-by-day walk with you. That's the dynamic of the Christian way of life, walking by the Spirit day-by-day. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for every single sin that you commit. There's no sin that he forgot, no sin too great for his grace. And at the cross, he paid that penalty so that all that is left for us is to accept that as that payment as a free gift, to believe on him, to trust in him, and to uh, recognize that only on the basis of his work on the cross do we have access to your throne Do we have access to heaven, and do we secure our eternal destiny uh, with you in heaven? Father, we pray that at this time anyone who trusts in Christ would make sure that they do that, and we know that at the instant that they believe that Jesus died for their sins, they are justified, regenerate, and become a new member of the body of Christ. Father, we pray that for the rest of us you would challenge us in the area of compassion, in the area of mercy, as a reflection of your mercy and your faithfulness to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.